Hello and welcome to episode 56 of The Thing About Golf, Golf Australia Magazine's ongoing quest to figure out what it is that hooks people on this infuriating game. Rod Murray's my name and alongside my colleague John Huggan, we get to get to, we get to talk to golfers from all corners of the game, including, as we will today, those from the world of TV. The name and voice of Hazel Irvin will be familiar to many from her more than 25 years of part of the BBC's coverage of golf and in particular, the Open. John Huggan was at many of those events and got to know Hazel pretty well over those years. Huggy, bit of a trailblazer, Hazel Irvin, uh, not a token part of the appointment. This is a woman who really knows her stuff. Absolutely. Um, it's hard to speak too highly of Hazel. I mean, I'm a huge fan of uh, her work on not just the golf, but any number of sports on the BBC. She still does things like the snooker and the Olympics uh, on a regular basis. And if you want to see somebody doing their job really, really, really well, just watch Hazel Irvin on television. She is absolutely the top of what she does. I mean, it's seamless the way she joins things up. It's a very difficult job. I can only imagine what's going on in her ear, you know, microphones going and voices and all the rest of it, but you would never tell. I mean, she there is absolutely nobody does a better job than Hazel does at that kind of thing. This is high praise indeed from somebody who doesn't speak glowingly always about our friends in television. I mean, we understand not, their constraints. Not always, not always, no. No, no, indeed. Uh, I haven't had a chance to yet listen to the chat, Huggy, but I'm getting the sense it might be like a few of us. It's going to be a chat between two old friends. You must have enjoyed having a sit down with Hazel. Yeah, it, well, we're both from the same part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, she has the great, honor, I suppose, the honour of being. She was born in St Andrews. Can you believe? Wow! Uh, not, not that she grew up there. She, the, um, her family moved. I think she was four when they they moved to the, to the uncivilised part of the country <laughs> over across in the west, near somewhere near Glasgow. Uh, she'll laugh when she hears me say that. But uh, yeah, she's uh, yeah. But I mean, I've known Hazel a long time. Um, I, I don't know her really really well but uh, well enough to to call her a friend yeah she's uh but I, as i say my, my admiration for her is 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 almost uh is almost, i almost find it hard to to put into words how good she is at her job i mean it's very very difficult because it's it, she makes it look so easy she's one of those people that it just looks easy because it, and she makes the difficult thing look so easy and it's brilliant to watch that's what professionals do, isn't it, Huggy? Professional golfers do it, professional sports people do it, professional broadcasters do it. They make the very difficult. Yeah, I, I would have no idea about that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah <laughs> well, Huggy, I'm looking forward to having a sit and uh, being a fly on the wall and listening to the two of you chat. Thanks for having, uh, joining us for a quick intro today. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay, here we go with the latest edition of the Thing About Golf podcast. I'm joined today by my fellow countrywomen and one of the most admired broadcasters, I think, in the certainly in the UK, if not uh, in the the rest of the planet, uh, Hazel Irvin. Hazel, I always start with the same question on these podcasts. What was the thing about golf for you? Well, hello, John. First of all, can I say what an absolute delight it is to speak to my old friend. Um, thank you for that last <laughs> introduction. Oh, stop the money it. in the post. <laughs> um, the <laughs> thing about golf, John, is that it's in the DNA. If you've started early in your life and you've had that bug and it's gripped you, then it stays with you and you can't help it and you can't shake it. And even even if you spend a long time away from it, either not playing it or just dabbling or just watching it, it just gets its claws into you and you can't help it. And it's addictive. And I just I just think if, if you're a golfer or you aspire to be a golfer, it, it just doesn't leave you. And 
that's the thing about golf. Um, it's a lifelong addiction. Well, you got off to the, the the perfect start, if you will, because you were born in St Andrews, of all places. I, I know you didn't grow up there. Tell me how you got into golf to start with. We'll go from okay. There. Well, I was born in St Andrews. That's right, and I was I lived in Fife. Um, the Kingdom of Fife for the first four years of my life, and then I moved across to the other side of Scotland. And I was there in a wee place called Cardross, which is a very fine golf course. And my dad was very keen. And I do remember some of the earliest times walking with my dad. He used to try and get my brother and myself. My brother was three, is three years younger than me. Uh, so I think I probably was introduced to it in terms of walking around with my dad when I was about maybe, I think, probably seven or eight, John. And I think he just tried to encourage us. It was more like a walk. He was trying to get the family out for a walk. Mm. And I remember I remember being handed a cut-down club. It was it was a bog-standard um It must have been a five iron, something like that. I can't really remember. And he cut it right down, and I was just puttering about with it. But I I genuinely do remember the first time that I got loft on it. I actually hit a shot, and it went up in the air. Mm. And I think that was it. I think I think I thought, wow. And it was just that sort of instant gratification, the feeling of I did that, and it went. And and that's and I think that's all it takes. Yeah, well, it's one of the great milestones, isn't it? It is, it is. And I remember joining the club when I was probably about, I, I think, probably nine or ten. And I do remember summers in Scotland when they were glorious, uh, about sort of 76, 77, um, being sort of, I can't remember, about 10, 11, 12, around the time. And I do remember my summer holidays, I would spend all day, all day uh, there at the golf course. And I would play two rounds a day and I would have lunch I'd have, yeah, I don't know, sausage sandwich or something like that that the club would make, and you you get some pocket money, and you'd have a drink, and then you'd be back out there putting in the in the lunch hour, and then you'd be back out there for another game. Uh, obviously, holding up all the members with your with your rubbish play. But I, I do remember with great fondness those well spent uh, youthful summers on the golf course, and I have mm. sort of wonderful, beautiful, hazy, hot memories of golf. Um, it must have been a rather specific period in time, John, because obviously you don't get many of them in Scotland at the moment. But um, yeah, I, no, no, that was how I no. got started, and and then I then I started to improve. I had a couple of lessons, but mostly it was kind of self-taught, and also my dad. My dad was very keen to to teach both my brother and myself. Um, I was a bit of a of a chucker for a while. I was a bit of a club chucker, and then I realised that uh, that didn't help. I actually do. I think there is probably an eight iron still lost somewhere uh, <laughs> along the way. But I realised that it wasn't. It really wasn't becoming of me, um, and it didn't actually do any good. So I stopped chucking clubs and, and practised a bit more. Yeah. Now tell me, uh, what was your experience like as a as a girl? In the golf club. I mean, the, the notoriously um, girls who start, as you did at a young age, they get lost to the game, you know, in their mid-teens, that things happen and they, they drift off. Um, what was your experience and how, how were you treated at the golf club? 
Well, that's that's a really good point because you know my my sort of hazy memories of it um, were also quite lonely memories, if I'm honest, because there weren't many of us. I think there were the, the, the club had a good junior section at the time, and all were encouraged. But you're right, there really weren't many. There was a there was a girl called Jill Jilkinloch, uh, and Jill actually became a professional, um, and she was very good yeah, uh, and uber competitive. Yeah, I remember Jill. Uh, so we used to play quite a bit together, but obviously. Her, her timetable was different from mine. There was another couple of girls that I, I used to chum up with, but I did chum up with the boys a lot. I played with with the guys, played with my brother, um, played with quite a lot of the of the boys, and and sometimes just played by myself quite a bit. So you're right, there really weren't many, um, but I think that sort of feeling of being not other that's that's wrong, but in the minority was actually quite a motivating factor for me. There was a, there was always a sort of I'll show you mm. types. <laughs> and I don't know whether that uh, – and, and that wasn't because I, in any way I was treated badly. On the contrary, I think it was just because I was I was one of not many um, uh, young girls mm. who were, were members at the time and who were active all the time. But I did, it didn't I, – I don't remember it being a hindrance and I certainly don't remember it with any degree of uh, – of uh, of malice or or bad blood in that respect, it was just the way it was, John. Um, it's it's different now. I hope, and I hope it's uh, I hope things are, are getting better in that regard. Well, it, it's certainly improving. I mean, there's no question. But for a long, long time, the, the golf club was not the sort of most welcoming environment for for children, and particularly female children. Um, but obviously, your experience was better than that, thankfully. No, it was, and there was there was no question about it not being welcoming. It, it was um, I, it was the junior section, and the junior section, regardless of of boys or girls, um, were you know we we played at set times. We were allowed to play during the summer a lot more, um, and I, I always found the club to be very welcoming. Uh, obviously, and I, I you know golf golf courses and golf clubs are places of rules. And I do respect those rules, and I, I like to play by the rules in that regard. Um, so I think there was a, a discipline to be learned, whether you were male or female, about um, being a member of a club and abiding by the rules and playing by the rules when you're out in the course. And you know, the, those were lessons that I found valuable, rather than to be rebelled against in that regard. So, no, my experience was was positive in that regard, but it was just a little bit lonely. Yeah. Now, I'm going to move you on a few years. Um, I've got a very good question here for you. Tell me everything you know about the history of art. <laughs> Ooh, well, that was probably, um, I, I would say it would take a while, but it's been a while since I actually um, uh, thought about it. Yes, that that was where I, I ended up. I, I went off to, to University of St Andrews, uh, my birthplace. I think there was a sort of romantic longing to be back there, but there was also the very strong allure of um, of many rather good golf courses to be played. Uh, that was mm. definitely an attraction. Um, and I, I, I played golf uh, for the university's uh, golf team for, for a long while, really enjoyed it, uh, and uh, that so that and actually the, the small story about that John is that the new course was the kind of home for the university courses at the time we used to play our uh, our matches against other unis on the new and I absolutely loved the new course I'd, I'd still I still mm. actually prefer it to the old in many respects because at the time it was more appropriate for for um, for budding golfers like myself and um, the subtleties of the old course uh, were were learned with some very hard lessons along the way, but I loved the new course. 
Uh, it was more sheltered. I used to play the Jubilee course at St Andrews as well, which was far more windblown. You used to get earache in your right ear going out and earache in your left ear coming back home again because of the location of the holes. But uh, yeah, I used to play a lot of golf there and that was, again, part of the attraction. But when I wasn't playing golf or, or running and athletics teams in general, I was a bit of a, of a fitness nerd in those days. Um, I was studying uh, history of art and English. In fact, I started a joint honours degree with English and history of art, which I was enjoying. But I found that there's only one person that ever done the joint degree. And unfortunately, it did mean that rather than it being sort of 50-50, it was kind of 75-75 of both. And after about four weeks mm. of, of going into junior honours year, I discovered that there just really weren't enough hours in the day to do 75% of both courses. And I had to plump for, for the one that I really enjoyed. And by this point, I was absolutely loving history of art. And I did that to uh, senior honours and I got my degree, uh, my honours degree in history of art and I majored in 20th century modernism and postmodernism, believe it or not. And I combined that with medieval manuscript illumination. <laughs> so, 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 you know, figure that out. Um, but I, I just, I loved it and it's still a bit of a passion. I still, uh, I still collect things. I still, I'm interested in it. And um, yeah, so that was my sort of academic passion, which went hand in hand and in tandem with my sporting, uh, my sporting love uh, at St Andrews. Yeah. Now tell the listeners um, where you lived while you were a student and uh, the view from your window. I've always envied <laughs> this story. Oh, I know. I tell you what, this this was. It's still one of my great memories, and I can put myself back into this spot any time I want. I used to be the senior student, actually. I was voted a senior student at Hamilton Hall of Residence. Now, for those who don't know that building, it is the big red building. It used to be a hotel, and it is right next to the Royal and Ancient Clubhouse. And I, as my as my senior student year, in the fourth year, uh, I was allowed to choose the room that I wanted for my last year, being senior student. So I chose room number 90 which was on the fourth floor and it had a room directly looking onto the 18th green on the old course, right down that beautiful, beautiful view um, and right across out to the West Sands overlooking the Royal and Ancient Golf Club um, the, the clubhouse there and I used to I had my I had my desk pushed right up against the the uh, the window. And I used I used to look out there and pretend that I was working. And eventually, when it came towards my uh, final exams, I had to take. I eventually had to move the desk away from the window because my time was spent yeah. looking at golfers playing the 18th and going short valley ascent, short valley ascent. Oh, that one's on. That's near the start of mm. So I used to watch everybody coming up the last and fantasizing about the next uh, time I could get on the old course. So um, yeah, it was it was a fantastic room, and, I'm, and I still have a beautiful picture of it in my house, and I can take myself back. And actually, just as a sort of adjunct to that, my best friend and myself, Anne, every morning in the six weeks up to my final examinations, we used to leave the breakfast hall downstairs. We used to go out. We used to turn to the right, go down the scores, 
across Granny Clark's wind, which is the road that basically sort of divides the first and 18th fairways from the, the, the top and bottom parts, if you like, come back up past the starter's hut, past the big window at the clubhouse that you could always peer into, back straight in, and we walked straight into the library and started our studies. So that was how we started our day for those very fraught last six weeks ahead of our finals. So, uh, so many of my memories are entrenched in in views of St Andrews and sort of calming walks along the West Sands. And it's just a place that I can go to in my head, even now. And I still dream about it, John. I still dream about those days of being in that room and the views. And it's it's something that um, my mind seems to go back to quite a bit, yeah. Well, just, just to complete the circle, um, you're, and I believe you're now a member of the RNA, no less, one of the first women members. Um, <laughs> tell me about That's that. Right, yes. How did that come about? Well, it's it sort of it was it was a, it was a bit of a surprise. Um, I'd obviously been working in golf oh, for a long time um, as a broadcaster, uh, and I'd been sort of working at the Open Championship as part of the BBC's um, broadcast team since about I think two thousand two thousand one something like that. John said two thousand, but I'd been doing the women's golf coverage. I've been uh, presenting that since about nineteen ninety two. Um, so I, I, I sort of mixed and matched between the women's and men's tours, but worked more regularly on the on the men's golf uh, from about two thousand, and eventually um, took over. I, I did I did a secondary presentation to the wonderful and inimitable Steve Ryder, uh, who was just my mm. absolute dream broadcaster. And I, I I really don't think there are many better, and ever will be better than than Steve and. I think in those days, John, just as a sort of, again, slightly tangential, in those days, you were either a kind of Des Lynham person or you were a Steve Ryder person. It's a bit like the sort of co-novet <laughs> of broadcasting. You, you, you either preferred yeah. one style to the other. And for me, I, with the greatest of respect to Desi, who was a wonderful sort of mischievous broadcaster, I really loved um, I loved Stevie's grasp and calmness and unflappability and his ability just, he never obviously worked from a script, um, as did very few uh, in those days, and just made it up as he went along. But his command of language and his and his ability to sum up a situation and remain calm but still convey enthusiasm was something I always loved. Anyway, um, I worked along with Steve, who was always a fantastic and generous, generous person to work with. Um, and then I worked uh, with Gary Lineker, was, was in um, the role... Uh, as well and then Gary decided to stop and then I was sort of um given the the main presenter's job and I, I sort of, I, I did that from about 2009 2010 and I was so privileged to work at Open Championships and the Masters and to sit in that chair it was it was the greatest thrill and after a few years of that uh, I received an invitation um to become a member of the RNA, which, which was incredibly um, fulfilling and incredibly, uh, I think it was a it was a very important milestone um, for me. Uh, but also, I think it was a hugely positive development for the Royal and Ancient too. And I think that's that's widely recognised. And I've been I've been made so welcome i've played in a couple of of tournaments and have thoroughly enjoyed the experience and have been made extremely welcome so i'm 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 very honored to to be a part of it not least i think because john of my connection with the town 
um, obviously having been mm. born there. But I think also the fact that, you know, the club itself is such a huge part of the town. And I feel such a, a huge part of the town, not least because of my 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 sort of uh, my connections, having been born there, but also having been gone to university there. So for me, it, it was sort of it squared a circle in a way. Um, I do remember my in, in one of my old uh, my old days at, at St Andrews in one of my final years, the university used to run golf holidays and I volunteered to be part of it, uh, to, to help run it. And in, in other words, I was paid to play golf for six weeks during <laughs> during the summer. It was an absolute <laughs> no-brainer. Um, we stayed in Hamilton Hall of Residence, where I was uh, where I was uh, living at the time, and um, several of my friends did so as well. And we basically guests came and stayed at the university, and we played the old course. We had to go in for the ballots, all the rest of it, but it was all very well done. But I do remember that sort of frisson of going and knocking on the big doors in order to collect tapes mm. of old championships past at St Andrews and the thrill of walking in there and um, and taking these tapes and thinking, God, this is this is fab and, and walking out and so but then to be able to walk through the doors as a bona fide member was um was not least thrilling, but it was um I, I feel I feel really um honoured to to be a part of it, yeah. It's just a part of history, I think, as much as anything, John. Just there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how did you feel about the kind of wider issue? I mean, I was, I mean, I've written about all this a million times, but I never really had a problem with um, single sex clubs per se, in that, you know, if somebody wants to be a member of a club like that, fine. I mean, who am I to say you can't do it? I mean, it's not for me, but it, I'm not going to dictate to other people. But I did think it was, it was slightly different for the RNA, given that they, they make the rules for the, for everybody around the world kind of thing. And for them to be discriminating against sort of half the world's population had to be something that was fixed. I mean, I don't know how you felt about subjects like that, but I mean, how did you come at it? Well, I mean, like you, I always, I always felt it, it would be, uh, I think it would be a, a beneficial route to go down because you're, you're quite right in, in as much as, um, a governing body or a club which is very much um, in everybody's minds as a sort of focal point for for the sport. Um, I think it was more of a, it was an image situation as much as anything, and mm. and I take on board what you say because it's something that I had been, if not actively campaigning for, then certainly agitating for for some time um, in my own my own way. Uh, as you know, I'm, I'm quite a private person, and I don't I, I don't go out of my way to um, to create headlines or to to do things for the sake of doing them. But I do try and work behind the scenes in in, some, in many respects on these on, on, on this and other matters actually. So um, I, I did feel that it was I think I think the term missing a trick is is possibly more apposite in this because I, I do think that image. So much these days um, does count, and from my own perspective as a female broadcaster, I've, I've often been told that oh, you're a role model, and you go in there and you've shown people what to do. I didn't really consider the impact of that until, um, ironically, um, girls used to start writing to me and say, "I'd like to do what you did," and I, I didn't actually consider that I was having. In any impact on that. I was just trying to do what I was doing in broadcasting and whether that was against the grain or whether it, it, it was certainly, it, was, it wasn't ground, well, it was kind of groundbreaking, but I never 
perceived it as groundbreaking. I just was trying to do my job because it was something that I love. So I wasn't in any way trying to get on some feminist charger and uh, and go, you know, with my sword in hand. Not at all. I was I was certain I was I was trying to do my job, and and but but then. When people started to write to me, I thought, oh, okay. Uh, and in fact, weirdly enough, um, Ailey, Ailey Barber, who's now uh, presenting uh, the golf for, for the BBC, uh, th- this story is, is absolutely true. Um, she she did write to me as a 14-year-old, and I, I, wrote, I did write, but thank goodness, I wrote back. <laughs> and uh, she said, how do I get in? To television, and I said, "Well, these are some of the avenues that I can suggest that you try and work towards, and you do this, and da 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 da." And I'm glad I did because some years later, she turned up on a snooker gig that I was working with, and she was working as a as a a, a young producer with IMG, and uh, it was pointed out to me that uh, Ailey was was down there, and she she was a bit she was a bit reticent to come and say hello. And I said, "Goodness!" And she said, "Yeah, I did write to you, and I couldn't believe it." And and since then, she's um, she said that having seen me doing grandstand uh, when I was quite young, uh, she said, "I didn't know girls could do that. I didn't know girls were allowed to do that." And that that really struck a chord with me because it wasn't a question of being allowed to it was whether it for me it was being accepted. But yet I see other young women saying they didn't think they were allowed to. And that, that, that kind of cut me to the quick a little bit. I thought, wow, that's amazing. So that's, that's where I'm coming at this, John, because I do feel that perhaps there was a perception that they weren't welcome because they weren't allowed. This is women in, uh, in, in clubs, just as, mm. just as men weren't allowed or accepted in, in women's clubs. And I, I do think those are barriers to participation generally, whether it's a men's club or a women's club. You're right, people are perfectly within their rights to do these things. But I think it was more of an image situation. Mm. And I think the sort of, I think the responsibility to create um, avenues for inclusion um, for men, women, and for all sectors of society, it was just an open goal waiting to be scored, and um, and I think they've finally put the ball in the net now, and I think everybody's relieved and happy about it. I certainly am. Yeah, I think you're dead right about the the, the image thing. Um, I mean, goodness knows, um, I'm, I've had a few pops at the RNA over the years on various subjects, and they they do suffer still from that, and they, they've made great strides. The, the old image of the you yeah, know the really guy sleeping in the asleep in the chair you know with the, under the Daily Telegraph you know with the gin and tonic on the table and the soup stain on the tie and all that stuff I mean the, those days are long gone I mean the RNA the you know the the organisation now that runs the Open it and all things they're young and they're vi- and they're, they do a lot of really good things but the but the image lives on I mean they're good, it's going to take a long time for that image to to disappear sadly. Well, I, th- I think, but that you could you could probably roll that out to many other uh, aspects of society as well. Change does take some time, but I think that the positive strides have been have been made, and I can honestly say that in terms of the welcome that I was given, um, it was it was it was tremendous. I, and and every, I've got to be honest here, John. When I was working um, on the Open Championship, um, particularly Peter Dawson and, and many others, Ian Patterson, so many of the of the guys that I met, um, Jim MacArthur, these guys were nothing but supportive of me. I mean, genuinely, genuinely, in private and in public, supportive of the efforts that I was doing as a broadcaster, um, and. 
I had nothing but good relations with all of these, all of the guys on the committee. So I can honestly say from a personal perspective, I, I never had a problem. Um, and I count many of these guys as my friends and colleagues. I've, you know, I've, I've had some great fun with them over the years and, I really hope that that image is changing because it deserves to change because of, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of water under the bridge in these things. But um, I really hope that we're moving to a much more positive uh, image for golf generally. And I think that uh, this is a really good step forward for golf uh, all over the world. And I think you know, you Mark, Martin's um, women's, women's golf well, Martin's Martin Slumber's Women's Golf Charter, which I was I was um, I helped to launch a few years back up on on the Shard in in, in London. W- what a fantastic uptake um, mm, for yeah. that there's been around the world, and I think that was a hugely important step as well. So things are changing, but but sport is changing. The world is changing. I mean, we've just come through through two years of of a pandemic, which has changed everybody's perception of everything. Frankly, so mm. there's there's just there's just so much work to be done uh, as everybody's trying to sort of negav- navigate these um, these rather strange and uncertain times still. Yeah, you, you mentioned Peter Dawson. I can't let it go by without um, mentioning uh, my relationship with him. It's, uh was slightly more adversarial at times, but uh, it, we ended up getting on very well. But I used to go to lunch um, yeah. fairly regularly or occasionally uh, the RNA with the, the late, great uh, Renton Laidlaw. And uh, when when we'd bump yeah. into Peter Dawson in the clubhouse, he always greeted me with the same line, which was, "Who let you in?" So, <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> oh, but he was a good man. Oh, oh yeah, 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 certainly. And um, I've always got on very well with his wife Juliet as well. And um, and we've had some fun with Peter over the years. And um, a more passionate advocate for golf, you could not meet. He absolutely lives and breathes the game. And um, so and it's so good to see him branching out um, into into other fields within golf because um, I, th- I just felt there was so much more that that um, that Peter wanted to do within golf and it's great to see him having having done that and you know playing such an important part in uh, in getting golf into the Olympics and what a huge success that has been I mean absolutely fundamentally important to the growth of the game and such a welcome addition or readdition. Uh, to the Olympic program, and and you know you have seen it the last two games. What mm. brilliant, brilliant golf we've had! What great competitions, especially the first one with with Henrik and Justin striding down uh, the fairways in Rio on that um, on that effectively the playoff. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Yeah, really good. Yeah, I'm, I must admit, I'm I'm a convert to that. I, I had doubts about it to to begin with, whether golf had a place in the Olympics, and I got the argument that um, you know there was a lot of money that could be pumped into the game by you know governments because it was an Olympic sport that I got that argument, but I wasn't hundred percent convinced that it was going to work just as a, an Olympic sport, but you're right. I mean, it's been terrific. This, the past one there where uh, yeah. Shoffley won was terrific. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. I, I was actually on the air at that for that one. Um, and <sighs> so, sorry, John. No, no, I, I was just going to say, and you've preempted one of my questions. I've, I've just scored through uh, golf in the Olympics of my list of questions for you. So you beat me to it on that one. Well, actually, <laughs> I, I was on the air with that one, John. Um, and we had all sorts of other events planned to go to. But of course, that playoff, which was sort of a 300, 300 strong playoff, or all it felt like, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. With, with Paul Casey involved as well. I was, I was so desperate for Paul to get that, for, to get that medal. He was so close to getting one. Um, and, and I know 
John McLaren's caddy very well, and I'd been sort of messaging them uh, throughout the whole time, saying, you can do this. Um, Rory involved as well. But it, it struck me just how important um, these things were. Shuffley played brilliantly to win, uh, but I think also just that struggle for a bronze medal, you could see just how important it was to get your hands on a precious bit of metal because, you know, the Olympics, and Justin always said this, you know, you can win you can win US Opens, you can win Masters and you're part of history, but to have that gold medal is just something so special. And I think there's always this delineation between what people thought of the professional sports, tennis, golf. Does it really matter to them as much? That was always the mm. argument, wasn't it? But when I when I saw Justin particularly in twenty sixteen in Rio in the tracksuit attending every conceivable event and just loving being an Olympian, this is long before he even played and then wearing that thing around his neck, wherever he went, and taking it out of his bag and seeing the joy in people's faces when they put it over their neck, that's an Olympic gold medal. And I won it, you know. So for me, again, that, that's it's, it's visibility. And I guess that goes back to my the heart of my love of sport is its, is its ability to inspire and to provoke change in people's life and to put them on different pathways. And for me, that has always been the, the attraction, not just of golf, but of sport. And it's encapsulated within the Olympics. So my my two main passions, golf and the Olympics, to see them come together like that in such a meaningful way has, has been very reward, rewarding as well. Yeah, I think if anybody ever needed totally convincing, it was the the line from Rory after the last one where he, he said he'd never tried so hard in his life to finish third. Exactly, exactly, exactly what I'm saying. It's a bit of metal, but it means so much more, doesn't it? And then um, I, I felt I felt very very devastated for for both Rory and, and for Paul that it didn't come off. But um, well, you know, there's other chances. Uh, Hazel, I want to drag you into your 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 broadcasting career a bit more. Um, you've you've covered all kinds of things um, over the years. Sorry about um, that. I do go off does, a tangent, John. No, no, no. It's fine. It's I've enjoyed listening to it so far. Keep it up. The um, the uh, I just wondered how golf um, compares um, as a, for a broadcaster. Um, is it more difficult? Is it different? Is it easier? What, what? How does it fit within the kind of stratosphere of all the things you've done? It's one of the. I think it's probably one of the most rewarding things that I've done, um, because it appeals to my. Um, it appeals to my, my knowledge and my early experiences of playing golf and appreciating what are good shots. Because if if you've played golf and you know how difficult it is to move a ball left to right or right to left or to whatever it is to chip and run, you know. To, to play subtle shots, you appreciate skill and subtlety. But more than that, for me, I love golf because of the psychology. I love the psychological drama of golf, particularly in a major championship. I just, it is so addictive for me. And the best thing ever when I was a, a child was shutting the curtains with my father and my brother. My mum was had more sense. Uh, <laughs> or the start of the coverage of the Open Championship in July and not moving for four days. And I, I we used to get it. We used to get it all sorted and shut it. And just that, just that, just the, the 
pure drama of that and knowing that someone was going to, someone probably unknown was going to top the leaderboard on day one and then you'd start to see the others. Who's within striking distance? But for me, the the psychological drama and the nature of it was what fascinated me. But what fascinated me more than anything else was why were there repeat winners? Why could some players do this not even not habitually, but constantly. Why could they be there at the top? What separated the serial winners from the guys who had this brilliant one-off week? And there are many that do that, obviously. But the serial winners, what what separated them? And so I always was fascinated that with that as a child, and then as a broadcaster, that appealed to me even more because I have to, I had to really start looking at their at their history and as you probably know John part of my modus operandi is, is to be as prepared for a championship maybe oh. not for a podcast sorry uh, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but but to be as prepared and as and as well read and as well informed as I possibly could be and that meant the minutiae of 148 players' lives at that point. I always made it my absolute mission beforehand to make sure that I could recall at least six things about every single player in that field at the drop of a hat. So that that's that's how I would work. But it, it always it always occurred to me when I was looking at these things, what was it that was separating the top guys? And ultimately, for me, when I looked through all of the biogs and I knew all the information, it was the head. It was the mentality. It was the brain. It was the control of the emotions which separated the 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 absolute legends of the game from those who would have their moment in the sun once or maybe twice and that is still what fascinates me so to answer your question in a very long and roundabout way that's the fascination of golf for me and therefore as a broadcaster i get much more or i did get much more out of golf in that regard because the fascination of seeing who could rise to those challenges and who could overcome the emotions and who could control themselves in those moments was fascinating. And in the back nine of a major, John, when you're in a broadcaster's chair, the world turns very quickly. I can't describe to you how difficult it is as a broadcaster to stay in the moment and actually look at the big picture because it's actually hard to remember what happened two minutes ago? Who's who's just oh they made a board. You've got a leaderboard in front of you, but it's changing so quickly, and the psychology of the drama changes so quickly. You've got to really make a proper conscious effort to step back and say, well, what what is happening here? He's four up with three to play. Oh, okay, or whatever it is, or he's uh, that's a bad idea. And um, he's two up with two to play. So. But you have to really step back from that and think. Uh, so as a broadcaster, the challenge of remaining calm and processing the information and conveying the story in those final moments is hugely, hugely difficult. Uh, it takes a lot of composure and it takes a lot of discipline and, and thought. So therefore, as a broadcaster, that was what was rewarding. When you got to the end of it and you stayed in control and you tried to convey the right amount of information and ask the right questions and you come off of it and you felt on of the world to have been to have played a, a, even a small part in bringing that story to the general public it was it was just it was just fantastic and at, say for example at the masters just the the, the sense of relief that it's over <laughs> but also the sense of achievement and fulfillment if it had gone well is is hard to describe so as a broadcaster 
it's amongst the absolute top moments of my career to have been involved in those, particularly the, the major championships, um, and ranks alongside, um, but for different reasons, the Olympic Games, which are basically you're spinning 28 different plates at the one yeah. time and, and needing knowledge about lots, you know, 10,000 athletes potentially. That's a different intellectual challenge. But knowing, and, and I did get the same thing with snooker. I have to know a lot more about fewer players in order to make this yeah. interesting to people. Because it's dead easy to say, what do you think of that then, eh? To your pundits. But you have to, you have to know more about these guys' yeah. lives in order to inform your commentary. That was always the intellectual challenge for me, but also the real reward when you felt that you told the story accurately. That's a very long answer. Sorry. No, no, that's fine. I, I, I was, I'm going to ask you to generalise now a little bit in that um, where, where do golfers compare or how do golfers compare with people from other sports as interviews? I mean, they they have a pretty good reputation, golfers, for being, you know, generally speaking, quite bright and good, give good answers. But what do you think? I agree with you. I think they're amongst the most thoughtful interviewees because they're one-man bands in many respects. They have a team, but they are very self-reliant on the course. And it always fascinates me when you ask a golfer um, what were the key moments, he'll, he or she will say, well, I, I, what I was thinking about with that third shot to the to the third green was this. And they can recall every shot, everything that you, every, every computation that they've gone through. Uh, so therefore, I, I think there's a huge intellectual element uh, about golfers, male and female, that um, that I I find very interesting to try and mine in an interview. I really enjoy doing that. So I, I think you're right. And some of the the best interviews that that I've been able to do have been with with golfers who are very thoughtful. And if they've got the time and you ask them the right questions, you get some very meaningful answers. But but generally, John, I think I think what we've what we've seen in sport over the last twenty years, particularly in Great Britain, has been the professionalisation. Um, or in a psychological sense of many of these athletes, and I've seen it particularly in Olympic athletes that perhaps were very much reliant on the emotion and on that inspiration and on that determination, all these words we used to use. But now they've been trained so highly in, in, in sports psychology that they're able to identify which triggers are likely to... They're able to, to, to think much more clearly in the, the difficult... Uh, moments where we'd go, ah, uh, we'd run away, but they're able to handle things. So I think generally speaking, there's been a, a move for a much more professional psychological approach to, to sport. And that does yield some uh, some interesting interviews. So golfers are amongst the best. Um, but I think generally speaking, you're getting a much more rounded interview with, with sports people generally these days. Who are your favourite golfers if, to talk if to? they'll reveal. Um, my favourite golfers. What I always say that one of the one of the most satisfying people to talk to was Nick Price. Um, that's going a that's going a long way back, and the reason is because if you asked him a question that was considered and half decent, he would give you a considered and very decent answer and response. He never gave glib answers, and he always he always thought about what he was going to say. Um, so I always respected him for taking the time, uh, not least, to answer a question. It would have been easy to say, yeah, because I did. 
or uh, yeah, no, it was all right. But he would always give you a full answer, and he always he would always ask, he would always answer questions. And so I always enjoyed speaking to him. I always enjoyed speaking to somebody like Justin. Justin Rose is a very good uh, man to interview because for the same reason, Podrick was always a fantastic interviewee because he it would all just come out at you. Um, because he, he did nothing but think. I loved I loved him for that. Yeah. Um, whether that was good or bad, it only only Podrick knows. It certainly yielded a lot of success, didn't it? Um, so those are amongst my favourites. And um, I I also enjoyed the challenge of of speaking to some people. There were there were some who I felt it was difficult, and you're always going to get a guarded response. That was always that was always challenging. I, I won't go names and pack drill on that one, John. But I, I find that's if you know you're going to get defensive hackles up from the start um i always found that quite challenging but in in general i found most golfers to be approachable open and honest and the other one was tom tom watson tom tom was tom was always brilliant with me i must say i always i always loved speaking to tom for the same reason that out of pure fascination you could go places with tom not just about his round um but into into areas of his past that he might be willing to speak to you about that you, you still find fascinating. So I always had a, a great respect and a lot of time for Tom Watson too. Yeah, we've had um, we've had uh, both Nick Price and Podrick as guests on this very podcast, and you're right, they they were both terrific. So um, great men. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I, I wanted to to ask you about the um, inevitably um, a guy I loved being around and or sitting and he sat in his living room a few times and just put the tape recorder on and asked him one question and sat back for two and a half hours. Uh, that was Peter Alice. Um, you must have some, <laughs> I know you're so you, you, exactly. you must have some Peter Alice anecdotes because everybody does. <laughs> oh gosh. What a man. What a man. I do miss him, John. I really miss him. I can, he's, in a way he's, he's not gone though, because it's a bit like my, my room at St. Andrews. I can always be there. Um, but with Peter, I can always be with him. Uh, because he's just such a huge presence in my life, and um, probably like everybody feels like that. But um, how can you sum up Peter? It's so difficult to sum up Peter. Peter, but I was thinking about this before we came on, and whenever I think of him, I see him in the big chair in the studio that we used to have. We used to have a mobile studio uh, when we were doing the, the golf. And he would come in, he was usually the first person there in the morning, even I, I was a bit of an early bird, but, but Peter would be there. And I do remember at Hoylake, I think it was, the year that Rory won, um, I remember coming in, the crack of dawn, I used to get in ridiculously early to try and get myself ready. And Peter would be sitting in his chair, and I'd say, what time did you get in? Oh, I've been here for a while, he'd say, you know. And I, I, I remember this conversation I had with him, this big man. Big presence in the room. You always knew when Peter was there. Not not just in terms of the physicality aspect of the man, but just there was an element. Of, there was a frisson when he was in the room because you never knew what he was going to say. There was an element of danger with him. He was never ever predictable. <laughs> yeah. um, you could never second guess him, and that was always the thrill and the slight kind of as well. But I remember sitting there, and I those were my favourite times with him. It was just me and him, and before people were getting in and he would sit there and I remember he, he turned around and he said what have you been doing kidder he used to call me kidder and um and he said, I've been I've been watching the clubhouse you know and he said uh, there's there's a there's a there's some starlings in the roof I've been watching them since I don't know where and there's, there's they just come in and out and and I think okay he said they've been there for eight you just the, the mother just goes in and so he and he, he was so 
obsessed with this. He said, there's a lot of people coming in today. I've seen a lot of picnic baskets. And they think they're going to. So he watched. He was a people and a, and a thing watcher. He was genuinely interested in stuff. I was, I had my nose in my books. Oh, I needed to know the stats about uh, greens and regulation yeah. by the time we went on the air. <laughs> he looked and he felt and he tested the temperature um, and he was able to inform his commentary with observations that were much bigger than stats. And I think that's why people loved him. Um, and for me, I'll always hear his voice in my head and I'll always have that image and those special memories of him. Um, and the, I think the last one of the last conversations I had with him, he, he phoned me up. He used to phone me up um, out of the blue sometimes when you know when we weren't on doing the golf, and uh, he'd say, "I would, I know," and he'd chat away, and he'd say, I, was, "I saw you on the snooker. I just, I just wanted to say, you've got to tell Ronnie O'Sullivan. I think he's marvelous." <laughs> and he, he just loved he, he loved people who were who were sporting geniuses. He could appreciate hmm. artistry and talent and he loved to watch inspired sportsmen, whether they were golfers, whatever he watched everything, John. He just he loved it. He was imbued with this passion yeah. and it would come out in what he did. So yeah. And one one other observation I should I should give you. A lot of people felt that Peter was the ultimate live broadcaster, which he was, because he never worked to script. He, he would always say it as he called it. Sometimes it got him into hot water, but he was nothing if not honest and such a generous man in everything he did. Um, on, on and off the air, by the way, uh, that's, those are, there's too many stories of his generosity even to go, to go with. Um, but he was a great man, certainly. I mean, I, I, as I said, I had many happy hours just sitting in a chair listening to him in, the, in his living room. So brilliant stuff. A lot of people felt that that um, Peter's genius was was just the technical, it was just the the live broadcasting side. But I can also tell you, John, when when we were doing edited highlights programs, which were really not that much fun, if I'm honest, <laughs> um, mm. because you lose yeah. the spontaneity and you're, you're, work to, you're working uh, much of the time re- retrospectively having seen what you're doing. It's just a necessary evil, unfortunately, these days. But um, that's the, one of the technically one of the most difficult things you can do um, in, in sports broadcasting is to do an edited highlights golf program, which is due out uh, and of a certain duration within the hour. Because and, and play is still happening. It's it's an absolute. It, it 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 takes nerves of steel in order to be able to do that because you're working right on the wire. You can't stop. You can't make mistakes. But you're you know that you've got literally 15 seconds. It's short circumstance. Say something interesting. Shushed because the because it's going to. And you, you it, it's really difficult. But I have to be honest. Peter was one of the absolute best. His his dis, his mental discipline was extraordinary in those circumstances. He he rarely, if ever, fluffed and had to do it again. And in exceptional circumstances, we'd have to rewind and do it. We did it for. We had to do it. It was more or less as live. But his contribution, which was not just oh, club distance situation stop. He would always be able to say something which illuminated those pictures even in those very restrictive situations. So as a technical broadcaster, he was he was marvellous, marvellous, he really was. So, yes, Peter, um, still very large presence in, um, in the lives of many who love golf. Um, we've talked a bit about the Open. Um, uh, I've 
been to the the Masters umpteen times as, as you have, and that it's a, it's a unique place in, in many ways, uh, not least for the, the the rules and regulations that um, certainly we journalists have to adhere to. Um, what, what was it like broadcasting the Masters? Was it more difficult, easier, or just different? It was very different, but um, in, in some respects, some of the rules, you know, the, the no the no running rule, um, the calmness, <laughs> yeah. the there's no mobile phones. In, in, in some respects, a sort of step backwards technologically um, in our everyday lives was truly, truly frustrating and truly wonderful all at the same time. Mm. To be able to say, okay, I can't phone you from the course when we're out filming. I will meet you at one o'clock under the big tree at the clubhouse was fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> I know, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But to be accountable and available and in contact all the time is a pressure that we all live with in our lives. But to have that taken away was brilliant. <laughs> it was also really difficult to operate with. But I respected yeah. I respected it and I was always made absolutely certain that um, it did not go anywhere with me, the mobile phone, for, for fear of being turfed out and never allowed back. So uh, some of the restrictions were, yeah, that they're unique, but those are the rules of of, um, of the game at, at the Masters. And let's be honest, um, it is it is the most wonderful championship. Uh, well, tournament, I beg your pardon. Be careful, get it right. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. it's the most wonderful tournament, and I loved it. I loved. I can, you know, one of the last when when I knew that I was I was going to call time on it. Um, I went to the last of the Masters and I remember sitting in my my presenter's chair with all of the beautiful flowers around us looking out onto this manicured practice ground which had sort of appeared overnight Mm. uh, the previous year and looking out and I remember um, my my, my floor manager um, Chris White and some of the others there in the back in the background of the studio and the kettle had gone on we were I was commentating part of the time the guys were doing their commentary from elsewhere it was very calm the play was going on I remember getting my mobile phone which was allowed at that point you're right in the studio I didn't do anything wrong and and I remember switching it to video mode and I put it I, I just put it on the desk so I could look down and I just I put it on the video mode so that I could hear the bluebirds and all of the bird song and just that sort of boom of heat that you you know that I'm talking mm. about just just the yep. sounds and the atmosphere and the crowd and I, I put it on for about half an hour and I just recorded the sound and I still have it so that I can put myself and it was a slight trickle of commentary but I thought I just want to remember the sound of Augusta that's for me the essence of it it's, it's such a sort of sensory place isn't it but the heat and and the the birds and the the sudden noises that you get from excited parts of the crowd all over the course it's just magical there's nothing else like it and those those are it's it's not so much the the electronics and the and the broadcasting and the golf although that's wonderful but it's the it's the whole atmosphere that goes with that tournament that's so inviting and so visceral um and and makes you want to go back into that warmth again and again i loved it absolutely loved it was there was broadcasting more difficult? Was there rules? Was there things that you were 
you cannot say this unless, you know, the big hand comes down. And- I never felt that, John. No, no, I never felt that. No, I, 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 I think if, if you work like that in fear of what you're going to say, then you're going to say it. <laughs> um, yeah, I never yeah. felt, I, I never felt under any, <laughs> you know, um, don't say that. Well, your mind's already thinking about it. No, I, I did what I always did, did, and that was to broadcast um, in the most um, effective and appropriate manner. Um, trying to tell the story as, as as best I could. I didn't I never had to change my style in order to fit Augusta's rules. And I don't to be mm. honest, John, I don't think anybody did. I, I think I think I'm not sure if it's a myth, but I never felt like I was being listened to or scrutinized in any way any any more than I was when you're broadcasting to four million people, you know? Um that's a pressure in itself mm. and you you try and adapt your well, that, that's just the discipline of broadcasting, isn't it? You, that's how you operate. You, you operate at that level of trying to say things appro- that, that, that are appropriate um, when you're broadcasting. You would rarely say, well, you would certainly try not to be inappropriate in any way. So, no, I, I never felt that pressure. Didn't feel it. Um, every broadcaster I've ever talked to has got a story of um, the, the, the cock-up, the mistake, Um whether you've just something's happened, it's gone wrong. It's not necessarily been your fault, but um, something has gone wrong, and it's very difficult when you're sitting there with the world looking at you with a camera. Um, is there anything that comes to mind with, with you? Oh, John, there's probably there's there's, there's loads. Um, I can't. It's it's always the same when you're asked that question. Your mind just goes a blank, yeah. um, and then afterwards you think, oh yeah, there was that time. <laughs> uh, there were many times that things went wrong, but I think. I I genuinely think the mark of a decent broadcaster is to keep paddling. Mm. The number of things that that go wrong behind the scenes that you would never know because you're not allowed to know because you just Mm. keep talking when the VT fails or the person who says they're going to be there is not there, so you have to fill until something else can be found or an appropriate guest can say something. Um, Oh gosh, I, I wish I could come up with something um, ridiculously daft. And if you give me another ten minutes, I probably could. Um, <laughs> it kind of caught me on the hook yeah. with that one, John. Um, oh, there's so so many, so many. But um, oh, I, I honestly can't think of anything off the top of my head that. That's well, don't worry about it. I've got, I've got, I, I do have other questions up my sleeve. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, well, I'll, 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 I'll try and think about it once you do it. Right. Okay. For, for example, I'm 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 always intrigued a little bit by the, the the difference, if there is a difference, or has there been a difference for you between broadcasting and journalism? Is there a difference? I mean, you've dipped your toe into well, certainly in journalism, and you've done a lot more broadcasting. I know, but is is a difference between the two disciplines? I think they're fundamentally entwined for me. I don't differentiate between mm. journalism and broadcasting because for me, broadcasting is journalism. The way the way I approach it is in a very journalistic way. I know my facts. Um, I've spoken to people about, you know, I, I've, I've I've spoken to interviewees. I've um, spoken to other people. The questions I ask are, I hope, journalistic in nature. Um, I I I rarely stray into, wow, that was great, wasn't it? Territory. Um, I always think very carefully about uh, the way I'd phrase a question. I would hope that every question I ask is 
is um, is based upon uh, fact or upon or, or is expressed or expresses a desire to know something that I genuinely don't know. Uh, so no, I, I see no difference at all. The way I prepare, the way I write a script, the way I um, think is is predicated purely on journalism. I would say um, it's it's my training. It's what I've always done. In fact, I think as I've got older as a broadcaster, I rely more and more on the the basics that I was taught and had to learn when I was just a baby broadcaster coming through in the late 1980s. So I see no difference at all, John. In fact, I, I think the two, I think, I think the with the greatest of respect, I think the best broadcasters are those who have been journalists. Um, mm. I think there's, there's, there's definitely a place for those who are, who've come, everybody learns journalism a different way. You don't have to go to college you don't have to, but you, you have to learn the basics clearly. Whether or not you have been in marketing, whether you've been in professional sport, whatever it is, but you serve your time in that respect. And I think a lot of it is experience. So, um, for me, it's it's over thirty something years of experience. And I think that I I can't help it. My whole um, ethos and the way I prepare and the way I broadcast and the way I write is just my training. Um, in journalism, so there's there's no difference for me now. I'm I'm interested in how you differentiate. Can, can you see a difference in in those who who are broadcasters and those who are journalists? Do, do you know? I, I'm interested in where, where that 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 question comes from. Well, it it, it often frustrates me, um, especially in the the former players uh, who've gravitated into to television broadcasting, particularly. Uh, it, it frustrates me because, especially the ones I know well, and I know the depth of the knowledge that they have, and the things that they say, you know, off air, if you like, that they're, they're clearly, they either they don't feel they're allowed to say these things, or they're told not to say these things, particularly things that could be perceived as negative, and it, it does frustrate me a little bit in that they descend into cheerleaders more than they should, because I know that these guys have got so much to offer. And they don't get. I don't see it happening on television, sadly. Well, that that's an interesting point because it's it's been one of my bugbears um, over the years. Um, not with fellow broadcasters, not at all. But I think I think sport has become such big business now, um, and I think also that uh, the rewards in sport and in broadcasting um, are such that, uh, let's say, for example, the Olympic Games. I am. Um, I am not a we and us person because I was never trained to be a we and us person. Those who are achieving medals for Great Britain are achieving medals as British athletes. They are not we. It, we are mm. not cheering we. They, it, it, it's, and I'm very careful to try and avoid that. I, I, I just think that it, it, it always strikes me as, um, as maybe even unprofessional. I look at other... Um, Wherever you are in the world doing broadcasts, you will look at the local uh, stations. And what always frustrates me is, for example, if I'm if I'm watching the Olympics in whichever country I'm in, and I'm watching host broadcaster to broadcaster uh, coverage, I think it's so important that you don't just say where our guy or our girl finished in the 100 meters freestyle. They were sixth or seventh. You must. 
as a matter of common decency, say who was first, second, and third, and the fact yeah. that that is the first Nepali. It, and I, I love that. You've got to say that is the first medal for Barbados in 27 mm. or 28 years, whatever it is. I love that. That to me is so important. It's much more than we've got 27 medals. That's great. But for me, the best stories that come out of Olympic Games are the ones where, and it goes back to my earlier point, John, that's why sport is so important. It gives people, it gives people, something to aim at when they see their fellow countrymen and women doing something that is important in a national context. And I think it's so important to recognise the feats that many other nations do. I get an absolute kick out of that. You just ask any of my colleagues. I am banging the drum about the mm. fact that Peru's, Peru's got the first walking medal <laughs> since 1968. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, lo I just love that. So... If I come at it from that perspective, that's it's trained into me that you must be equitable and fair, but also be interested in others. I'm not. I'm not there to. I'm not there to to cheer my own. I'm interested to ask the questions of people who happen to be from my country and countries from everywhere around the world because I'm interested and I think it's only decent and fair to do that. So, I get where you're coming from. I think you have to be very careful as a broadcaster not to do it i think it's the thin end of the wedge because then you if you do it too often then you can't ask the hard questions for fear mm. of coming across as someone that's going to batter some you've got to ask a question that is hard but in a fair way and i think i think then you gain respect if you're just going to blow smoke then people don't respect you if, if they know you're going to get if they know you're going to get a, a, an even-handed time with you but you're still going to be asked i think that's very important Sorry, I do sound like I'm on my soapbox now, but you've actually you've touched the nerve with me. That is, it's the fundamental part of of broadcasting is to be is to be um, even handed across the board. Yeah, yeah, I think you're you're right. I mean, I recently I I went to Dubai and uh, covered the uh, Asia Pacific Amateur Championship and. I really enjoyed that for the kind of the reasons that you've just talked about. I got to interview guys from yeah. all over the place, and my my favourite was the the lad mm -hmm. from Cambodia, who's the only player who's played in yeah. all twelve of the Asia Pacific Amateur Championships. Now he's never made the cut, and I'm fairly sure that he's never going to make the cut. But that that's not the point. the The fact is that golf has grown in Cambodia no. over the twelve years. Not not necessarily because of him, but, but you know, it's just it's more popular than it was, and it's growing. And that's the whole. That's the bigger point of that championship was just to to grow the game in, in that's weird the story, places, rather John. than it, it, that's find the out story. who the best player is. Yeah, precisely, precisely. And and that, as a sports fan and a journalist, is is where it goes for me. Yeah. I kind of dragged you off the BBC a little bit. Um, I, I, there was two questions I, Sorry, I, I had about that. Um, it was um, you finished in 2017 after 25 years of um, doing the golf or presenting the golf in various ways. Um, wh what brought you to that decision? And, and do you, like me, uh, lament the, the lack of golf um, on the BBC or the dearth of golf these days? Um, I used to love, like you, I would be the the guy who closed the curtains on Thursday morning and watched the golf like you did. Um, <laughs> it, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen anymore, but um, it's a two part question, but um, yeah, I just wondered how you felt about those things. Um, well, first part of your question, why did I decide to do it? Um, I did it for various reasons. Um, some of which I, I can be um, 
open with you, and some of which due to other reasons that I won't. But fundamentally, we, we've had um, we've had a few health problems in in our family that we've had to deal with, and uh, unfortunately, it meant being away from my family for quite a lot of time. So something had to give, and uh, after traveling the world and having a, a, an amazing time in that respect I, I just felt that I had to um, devote more of my time to uh, a family which needed me um, more than it had done uh, and without you know I, I don't want to, to go into that because it wouldn't be fair uh, so fundamentally everybody has um, everybody has uh, commitments and priorities and the health of my family was was number one uh, and that is that is the reason why I, uh, I made the decision to, to step down. Secondly, um, in terms of, of, of the way golfing politics has gone, uh, the world has, has changed so much, even from when I started broadcasting in 1987. Um, there were, I think, three main channels, uh, four main channels. I think Channel 4 just started. Um and now the proliferation of, of television stations and and, um, and the power and the money and the sponsorship in terms of sport bro- sports broadcasting, it's it's changed. I should really write the book, shouldn't I? I should really write that book, John. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> because it, it's 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 well over a quarter of a century of change that I've been um, able to have a, a, a ringside seat uh, at from literally being the second woman. In Britain to be presenting a, a major uh, sports program after Sally McNair, uh, to being yeah. one of hundreds. Uh, so you know, having mm. had that seat and having been a, a part of it has been has been fascinating. But I think we are where we are. Um, it is. I'd love to see more uh, live golf, but it's not. It's. You know, I, I'm not. I'm not a staff member. I I don't know um, many of the reasons, but it's it is it is the direction of travel at the moment, and I think uh, I, I'm still very privileged to be able to provide my services uh, on some occasions uh, for BBC Sport. It is the greatest honour of my of my career to be able to do the Olympics um, and to, to 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 be able to still do some of the snooker, um, and I get a real kick out of that. So. I think, and I do think that when uh, BBC Sport um, is up and running in terms of these major events, there are very, very few better. <laughs> there are very, very few organisations who would do it better. Um, so I, I'm still absolutely thrilled to, to be able to do that, really. That's what makes me sad, though, um, Hazel, is that, is that the BBC are so good at that. I mean, they've had you know iconic figures in... Many sports. Peter Alice is the obvious one in, in golf, and Peter O'Sullivan in the horse racing, and Bill McLaren in the rugby, and all the rest of it. Um, it's it's a you know I miss it. That's basically what I'm saying. I mean, I'm, this is an emotional question for me, really. <laughs> yeah, I miss it too. I miss it too. Um, you know, I, I, I used to do grandstand, uh, which was a sort of potpourri, a cornucopia of all the best bits that were curated, and um, but it was the same with ITV's World of Sport. It, it um it was it was the same situation wasn't it we had Dickie Davis and uh, and we had the, that was what we did but but the world the world has changed. You, you know you watched for four hours on a Saturday and you, you got the you got the, the football results all the rest of it but the world has, has changed things have 
things have changed. We are in a different broadcasting yeah. landscape with a proliferation of channels and competing interests. And that's where we are. That is the reality of the situation. So I, I agree with you. But we do sound like a couple of old dinosaurs in many respects, don't we? Because we miss we miss what we what we grew up with, don't we? We're, we're getting old, Hazel. Me, me more than you. But you no, know. but it's it's what we knew. It's what we knew when we were kids, and it's what we relied on was the whole Saturday afternoon of sport. But the kids of of ten years ago and the kids of today, that's not their reality. Their reality is they have a plethora of of ways of of consuming yeah. sport. They don't just watch the TV. I mean, they, they access it through clips, they access it through social media. The way they consume sport is fundamentally different to the way we do it too. So we also have to address these things too. So it's not just, it's not just the BBC or ITV, it's, it's the whole gamut of, um, of media outlets now that are having to change um, according to the demographics who are watching it and according to the habits by which we consume sport. So it's just, it's just the reality we're in, John. We just have to face it. <laughs> I know, I know. There's, there's nobody doing what I used to do. With at four o'clock on a Saturday, I would go down to my grandmother's and I'd get a plate of chips, and, I, and she and I would sit and watch the wrestling, Mick McManus and giant <laughs> haystacks and all those yes. things. Giant haystacks. <laughs> you see, now we really do sound old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hazel, I'm gonna. I'm conscious I've kept you long enough. But I'm gonna end with uh, the, the the great cliched question of. Um, in, certainly in golf, um, what would be the, the highlights for you of uh, the time you broadcast the golf? Oh, goodness. Um, the highlights for me would be um, the people I worked with, um, the teams I was part of, the situations that I was given responsibility to tell the story about, um, the mad panic slash thrill of hours and hours and weeks and weeks of preparation beforehand, the satisfaction of being there and being able to tell you something about everyone whenever I was called upon to do a leaderboard or do an interview, um, the feeling of being on top of it and the feeling of sharing in something truly unique, unscripted, wonderfully dramatic, thrilling. And there were many times, John, I sat back in the back nine of a major and just thought, man, this is fantastic. There is nowhere else I would rather be at this moment than right here watching this, talking about that person or that putt or that drive. It was just magical, engrossing, um, and one of the, the great satisfactions of my, my career. And um, the places that I went to, the opportunities I, I was given um, and the satisfaction of knowing that for reasons that I've articulated, I was able to say, I've enjoyed that. I've done as much as I know I can do at the for the time being. And I'm quite happy to say, that's enough for now. I have to put my energies into my family for the time being. I think all of these things. Um, and, the, and the other thing that I can go back to these places in my mind anytime I like, or back into my little phone and listen to my, my, uh, my recording of the Masters, or indeed pick up my clubs and go down to my local course and have a few holes. That is why golf is meaningful to me. Um, and to have been part of it, to play a small part in it, and to, to be able to still play it uh, is a great thrill. And to be able to talk about it and still watch it and still get a thrill uh, from watching it is... Um, is that, that's the answer to the question. 
the thing about that's the thing about golf for me. It's always there, and I hope it always will be. What a great way to finish, Hazel. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a joy as ever. I always like talking to you. It's uh, never been less than interesting, and, and you haven't let me down. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, John, it's, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for asking me. It's as ever, John. Whether it's whether it's formally or informally, it is always a joy to speak to you. Thank you. What a terrific chat from somebody with a very different perspective of the game, Hazel Irvin, with some great insights there. Well, that's it for episode 56 of The Thing About Golf, and indeed for season 2021. We'll be taking a break over the Christmas period, though there is no shortage of material in the back catalogue to listen or re-listen to while we're gone. We hope that you enjoy that, and we look forward to your company again when we come back in the new year.